Good morning, everybody. You're listening to Here's the Issue with me, Reese. All right, everyone. I have quite a news day uh, drawn out for you all. We're going to break down all the elections that happened on Tuesday. We had some big moves going on with the infrastructure and reconciliation bill. And there's a very, very robust poll that uh, came out regarding approval ratings, regarding Joe Biden and the rest of the Democrats. Uh, very, very long, very robust. I wasn't even able to look through all of it before I was able to tell it to you all. As well, I'm going to lay out some what I believe are each party's best strategies for the 2022 midterms. As well, we have the normal economic news. So, kicking it off, elections. First, I'm going to go pretty much race by race, um, talking about each of these. Um, and then I'm going to give you what I believe to be like the whole picture, the narrative formed from this event. So first off, we start off in Virginia, specifically the governor election. So here you had Republican, I mean, ah, Democrat, um, Mac, Mac, McAuliffe, there we go. McAuliffe versus Youngkin. Um, and so Youngkin won, the Republican Youngkin, won with 50.9% of the vote to McAuliffe's 48.4%. Uh, this is an 80% difference in votes in Virginia, so very, very close. Now, what you need to remember about this is that Virginia, Joe Biden won Virginia by 10%. So Youngkin managed to move the state 10% over the span of a year. I Technically not a year because he didn't move it for the entire year because he wasn't running for the entire year. But the point is that in a year, um, Republicans were able to move the state by 10 by 10 points. That's insane. Um, while, of course, the election itself, the win was very narrow, this might as well have been a blowout. You know, um, take take Pennsylvania, for example. Pennsylvania um, was very close in the past two elections. Imagine if Joe Biden won Pennsylvania by 10%. That would be a blowout. Um, so this is very clearly a blowout in a state that our Democrats have been doing very well in recently. As well, this was very high turnout, especially for, um, especially for um, it being an off-year, not just a midterm election, but like an off-year midterm election in, in an odd-number year. So it was like the least voted in elections. Very high turnout. Especially high turnout in um, suburban and rural counties. Um, Republicans were very much able to turn out in these sort of like suburban um suburban areas. And this is a narrative that repeats throughout most of the elections tonight. So I'll talk more about that later. Um, so this just sort of destroys the narrative that the high turnout supports Democrats and that, oh, Republicans just want to repress the vote because that turns out better for them. This is a clear example of Republicans really turning out the vote in a very, very serious way. So that's very exciting to see, uh, for them at least. As well, um, thing with Youngkin's campaign is he was not a very Trump-heavy Democrat. I mean, a Trump-heavy Republican like some other people have. But he's also not um, someone that's pushing away Trump and bashing him like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger have been. Um, he basically accepted Trump's nomination and uh, talked like highly of Trump. Said, you know, oh, I like some of the things that Trump did. But he also didn't fully embrace Trump. He wasn't bragging about Trump. And he tried very, very hard to have Trump ignore this race, pretty much. Very, very clearly, much the benefit of Yunkin. Because throughout the entire race, McAuliffe was trying to make this all about, basically trying to paint Yunkin, Yunkin as a Trump figure, to 
basically by painting Yunkin as this Trump figure, Mikolov would have been able to easily sail to victory in a state that obviously does not enjoy uh, Donald Trump. But Yunkin was able to basically push that away, paint himself as his own candidate, as well not fully rejecting Trump and thus driving down turnout for the base. So Yunkin walked this very narrow path that, so far, no other candidate had really been able to walk. And this might set um, basically set a precedent and set a um, blueprint for a lot of other Republicans going into the 2020 midterms about how they can thread this needle. As well, by sort of proving to Trump that this needle can be thread and, you know, prove, hopefully, the, the Republicans would hope that this would prove to Trump that, hey, you don't need to be sort of out in a very, um, very um, boisterous about every elect, every race. You know, you can just let some races go and we'll win them. Because, I mean, a 10% difference, that's insane. And I, pretty much the common consensus is that if Trump had been very boisterous about this, been campaigning with Youngkin, that this win would not have happened. And you'd see something more like a call-off up 10%, just like Joe Biden. Um, and so this is a very important lesson that Republicans can learn from. However, well, there was a lot of talk about, oh, the Virginia governor election was just um, very local. It had to do with the candidates, had to do with the Culliff's gaffe where he said that parents essentially have no right to um, control the education of their kids. Um, there, there was more than just that sort of local story because both the lieutenant governor and the AG, which are the other two statewide offices elected in um, Virginia, they also went Republican. So for lieutenant governor, Republican Winsome Sears beat Democrat um, Hala Ayala. Um, Winsome beat her by uh, 50.8 versus 49.49%. Oh, no, and this was a 60,000 uh, difference in votes. So it's a closer race. As well, this is the um, this will be Virginia's first black lieutenant get first black lieutenant governor as well. The AG was uh, Republican Jason Mieres versus uh, Democrat Mark Herring. Uh, Jason won 50.5 versus 49.4. So it's only a 40,000 vote difference, very close. And Jason is now the uh, first Cuban in statewide office in Virginia. Uh, I, and I bring up both um, Jason and Winsome's races because throughout the entire election, um, Democrats have been trying to paint Republicans as racists and bigots, while at the same time, the um, the current Democratic governor of Virginia, Ralph Nordham, um, either dressed up as a KKK member or in blackface for his school yearbook. Uh, he can't remember which one, which I mean, if you can't remember whether you dressed up in blackface or the KKK robe, <laughs> something tells me you did both quite a bit. Um, and so that's the Democrats and the Republicans out here elected, yeah, a white guy at the top of the ticket, but also uh, two minorities. So just kind of something to dunk on that narrative. Um, as well, like I said before, the fact that these, that all these statewide, there weren't any other statewide races, it was these three statewide races. All three statewide races went to Republicans in a state that went to Joe Biden plus 10. Um, and that's very impressive for Republicans. And spells, spells doom for Democrats, to be quite frank. So next I want to move on to New Jersey. Specifically, we have the governor race up first. Uh, so this was Democrat Phil Murphy, he was an incumbent, versus Republican Jack Citarelli. Now, Phil Murphy did win this, 
It was 50.9 versus 48.3. They're the six, 65,000 vote difference. So you might say, okay, well, Democrats won this one. So what, one in the column for Republicans, one in the column for Democrats? No, not at all, because Joe Biden won New Jersey by 15%. At first, it was thought that Murphy would win election by like 16 to 19%. And it was basically brought into a dead tie. It wasn't just brought into a dead tie by someone well known either. Jack Sotorelli, before this election, was an absolute nobody in um, New Jersey. And he was able to take a 15-point lead pretty much and bring it down to zero. He basically put it in a dead heat. And that's, um, that's amazing. Um, and again, it's just another um, doom spell for um, Democrats. As well in New Jersey, um, so... They had state senate elections. Their state senate president lost his re-election. He had Democrat Steve Sweeney, who was the senator of the president for New Jersey, lost to Republican Edward Durr. Now, what's notable about this is one that um, Steve Sweeney had been in, been in office since 2002. He'd been president since 2010. And he had basically had really easy re-election campaigns again and again and again. What makes this... um like different and interesting is that the 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 um, opponent Edward Durr is a truck driver who spent two thousand and three hundred dollars on his campaign. That's it. This truck driver basically sat around, spent barely any money, and was able to beat the Senate president, beat him fifty one point eight versus forty eight point two. The two thousand vote difference. That's insane. That's like if a truck driver just beat Chuck Schumer. In election and spent like a mere fraction of what Chuck Schumer spent. That's what it's like. This is absolutely embarrassing for Democrats. Next, I want to go to an election in Minneapolis. So in Minneapolis, on their um, they had a, like a ballot measure, and that ballot measure was basically to defund the police and make a like a, a public um, not public works, but um, public safety department. That would focus a lot more on um, like mental health services and stuff like that. Now, the thing to note is this also did not fully defund the police. It did shift funding around, but it did not fully defund them. But even with that, this um this ballot measure failed by twelve percent. And if you remember, Minneapolis, the city um where not um oh my George Floyd um was basically brutalized by police. And after all that, there was massive calls for defunding the police. And there was even talk that they were going to do it. But now the, the people in Minneapolis basically sunk this ballot measure by 12 points. That's, that's, that's insane. And that's, that should be a wake-up call to um, Democrat progressives about their um, ideal agenda. As well in Minneapolis, there was a mayoral race. The incumbent mayor, Jacob Frey, beat Kate Kunth after... Um, a second round, they had ranked choice voting and such. He beat her 49 to 38. Um, Kate Kunth was a very, very um, progressive candidate. Um, and Jacob Mayer basically campaigned on not wanting to defund the police, campaigned on keeping the police. Um, and he says that, you know, if he didn't do that, he thinks he would have uh, lost re-election. So that's very interesting to see uh, basically where Minneapolis was. As well, this is a very, very interesting race in Buffalo. Um, the incumbent mayor, Byron Brown, 
lost the primary to a socialist in DeWalt. So they basically had the primary, the incumbent mayor lost um, to a, a literal socialist in Buffalo. And so then in a state where they figured, oh, it's all, it was basically considered to be a lockup by India Walton then, because it's Buffalo, it's a major city, um, they didn't expect really, the Republican probably was like, was not not going to win, in fact, there wasn't even a Republican nominated, so she was basically running unopposed. However, Byron Brown, the incumbent mayor that lost the primary, then ran a write-in campaign, what appears to be a successful one. Um, in the election, 59% of the votes were write-ins. Now, that's just the amount of write-ins. So there's no guarantee that all those write-ins are for her. Um, but 59% um, to 41% of actual votes, especially when you had a write-in campaign, that's, um, let's just say she had a lot of write-in votes to not be hers and her still pull off the write-in campaign. So it, it looks like um, the incumbent mayor will retain her seat. Again, in a very local election, Seattle had a city council race. Um, moderate Bruce Harrell beat council president um, M. Lorenza Gonzalez by about 30%. So you had an incumbent in the city council. Uh, the president of the city council, M. Lorenza Gonzalez, who is more progressive, and Bruce Harrell beat her by 30%. In, in Seattle, not just in, like, I don't know, Salt Lake City, Utah. In Seattle... What's considered one of like um liberal crap zone, liberal horror, Seattle. The moderate beat the progressive by thirty percent. So that's that's um interesting to see. Here in Pennsylvania, um our Supreme Court election, uh Kevin Robson beat uh, Maria McLaughlin fifty two point two percent versus forty seven point eight percent with a hundred thousand vote difference. Uh, for the Superior Court, Republican Megan Sullivan beat Tamika Lane 54.5 to 44.5. Uh, and then for the Commonwealth Court, uh, Republican Stacey Wallace is in the lead and basically presumed to have a seat. Um, then Republican Drew Crompton is in second, and it's looking like he will secure the second seat and we will elect two Republicans to the Commonwealth Court. That's interesting to see as well. Now we go to um, Boston. Um, progressive Michelle Wu beat moderate Anissa George by 27%. This is actually one of the few elections that turned out very well for um, progressives. It is in Boston for the mayoral race where progressive Michelle Wu beat moderate Anissa George by 27%. Um, so yeah, so overall you have a whole lot of... Um, Democrats beat by Republicans, and progressive Democrats beat by uh, more moderate ones. Okay, so now a bit of um, discussion regarding what all this election mean. Um, overall, I think this shows that people are um, mad at the Democrats, specifically um, the more progressive Democrats. Um, you see this basically by... New Jersey and Virginia, as well through the various local races, you can tell that it's specifically directed at progressives, not moderates blocking up the, gumming up the works, as some say. So basically, some, I, okay, I think my analysis was pretty basic and rudimentary um, and simple. I think anyone that looked at all the elections would draw that same conclusion. However, as always, 
the Democrats um, are wrong <laughs> and are claiming that uh, they would have fared better if they would have passed the reconciliation bill. I mean, that's just so illogical to begin with, like on its face. Democrats went, wow, the people voted us out, specifically our progressive counterparts. And you know what would have had them vote for us? If we would have passed the reconciliation bill. Like, what? That's so illogical. If our people really were mad that um that the um infrastructure that the reconciliation bill wasn't getting passed, they would have voted the progressives in, at least in the Democrat v Democrat races. But also, think about it from the standpoint of a voter, okay? If I'm mad that Democrats aren't passing something, not even but like the Democrats generally want to. It's like a couple people kind of holding it up from the news story-wise. A couple people are holding it up. So why would I go, you know what? I'm going to vote for Yunkin over McAuliffe because I'm mad that Joe Manchin is holding up the bill. That makes no sense. If anything, you'd want to vote Democrat. Basically prove to Joe Biden, I mean Joe Manchin, that these things are popular. This thing is, um, just, it's just classic Democrats always blaming everyone but themselves and saying, oh, if we only would have pushed more and more left. You see this every time the Democrats lose a race with someone moderate. They say, oh, if only we had been more radical, if only we'd been more progressive. And, and again, you actually saw this um, um, in the Virginia race. So Democrats will point to the Virginia governor race and the uh, New Jersey governor race. Okay, and so in New Jersey, Phil Murphy was much more progressive, more radical than um, Terry McAuliffe, okay? And they say, see, if we would have just nominated someone, um, someone less, I mean, someone more progressive than Terry McAuliffe, well then, then we would have won, just like in, um, just like in Jersey. But that's flawed reasoning. The thing is, is that Virginia, Joe Biden won by 10, but New Jersey, Joe Biden won by 15, okay? And so, in New Jersey, it basically shifted 15%, and Virginia, it shifted 10%. So if anything, actually, you'd want to say, oh, we actually want more moderate candidates because it will stop how, um, how, how much they'll, they'll shift, okay? So imagine just a few more shift, points shift, okay? And then New Jersey ends up getting lost, okay? You'd want to look at that and go, oh, well, with the progressive in New Jersey, we lost by 15, but in the, um, more moderate with Virginia, we lost by 10. So if we would have had a moderate in New Jersey, we very probably could have like only lost 10 points opposed to 15, and then we would have been up five in the actual election. Now, of course, um, New Jersey had, uh, New Jersey did win with a more progressive candidate, but they also had more room to fall, and they used that extra room to fall. If they would have ran a, a um, more, uh, a radical, more progressive candidate for mayor in Virginia, you very well could have ended up with a plus five for Republicans then. Imagine how horrible that would look if, if Republicans won Virginia by 5%. So again, you just have Democrats saying, oh, we need to be more progressive, we need to be more progressive, running further and further to the left every time, every time the Americans reject them being on the left, they run further and further left. It's insane and crazy to watch. Overall from these um, elections, I bet moderates um, especially Joe Manchin, feel very emboldened in um, in their dealings with the reconciliation bill. I bet a lot of the pressure they felt to sort of pass it is gone. And like how I've been saying, that Joe Manchin 
is not the only um, person who is opposing this bill, you might see some more people coming out vocally and opposing it. Um, however, uh, with this like em emboldenedness, you definitely see some shifts with the Infrastructure and Reconciliation Bill, um, which I'm now going to get into. It's now uh, Infrastructure and Reconciliation time. So on Friday, on Friday, guys, the Infrastructure Bill finally passed. The bill passed the Senate all those months ago, and the bill finally passed the House like for, like the moderates have been basically begging. So this shows, you know, this the election really shifted uh, a lot more things in the moderates' favor. They were able to use this basically built up political capital from this election to push through the infrastructure bill. Um, the House Progressive Caucus, the Blue Dog Democrats, and the Congressional Black Caucus reached a deal that would do this. So the deal involved that they would pass the infrastructure bill, they would vote on rule setting for the reconciliation bill, and um, they would sign a promise, and the moderates would sign a promise that they would vote on the 1.75 reconciliation bill if the CBO score matches the White House score. So yeah, some people in the House wanted to just go with the White House estimates, but the moderates insisted that they, they let the CBO score it, okay? Um, because obviously, this, like the, the White House Congressional Budget Office, wait, no, the, the White House's Office of Management and Budget is a partisan, basically, office, I guess, to say. Um, and so they're obviously going to score it using accounting tricks in favor of uh, the bill. And so the CBO score, which is a nonpartisan office, is considered a much more reliable score. And so people want to wait to see um, what that score is going to be. Because there are some estimates, not to the CBO or OMB, but other estimates from private groups saying, hey, this bill might actually cost $4 trillion, which is basically twice as much as they're saying it is supposed to cost. Because... Um, it did get negotiated down to like 1.7 trillion now. Really, this bill has just been taken back from Bernie Sanders' dream, six trillion, the partway compromise at 3.5, and now 1.75 trillion. Um, but with that, with that being said, this um this compromise was struck only in the House. Joe Manchin um in the Senate basically says that yeah, I have no clue what's going on. No one's talking to me. Um, I don't, I'm not paying attention to what they're doing, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, which is pretty, um, crazy. Because um, this lack of communication, you're going to see, what, this happens a lot sometimes, is when a compromise is reached in one house, and that compromise cannot be agreed to another house, they essentially have to start over. And sometimes it goes back and forth. They both will reach a compromise, but that compromise can't be passed in the other house, and so it just restarts over and over. Um... And so, yeah, so the moderates do not want to part of this this deal between the House Progressive Caucus, the Blue Dog Democrats, and the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, obviously, they, they probably want, the progressives probably wanted to just pass the reconciliation bill as it stood, but they couldn't because the moderates refused to until the CBO score comes out. Um, and no one's really sure when that will be. Uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says that the um, CBO score probably won't be done until Thanksgiving. So again, you know, this bill that they wanted to pass, well, I guess the infrastructure, I guess infrastructure week is finally over. Um, however, we know the infrastructure that they meant was basically welfare, and the welfare bill, which is the reconciliation bill, really isn't done yet, and so it's still kind of infrastructure week. And 
They wanted to get this pass, this stuff passed back in March, then they wanted to get it passed in August, September. They said by the end of October. Now, they, now moderates won't even look at passing it until Thanksgiving. Um, and for all you that know that, that's pretty much the end of November. Um, which means unless they pass it right after that, it's going on until December. As well, what's happening in the beginning of December? Government funding runs out from the continuing resolution. And B, the um, debt, the debt ceiling needs to be um, raised or suspended again. So, again, Democrats are running up, running out of time and pushing themselves into a corner here. Um, so, when they voted on the infrastructure bill, um, some progressives did keep their word that the, that the bills must be linked and they voted against it. Um, Reps Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, AOC of New York, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, Cory Bush of Missouri, and Jamal Bowman of New York all voted against the, um, whatchamacallit bill, the, um, infrastructure bill. As well, um, some Republicans voted for it, um, um, Adam Kininger of Illinois, uh, Jefferson Van Drew of New Jersey, John uh, Katko of New York, Don Bacon of Nebraska, Don Young of Alaska, Fred Upton of Michigan, Chris Smith of New Jersey, Brian Fitzpatrick of PA, Tom Reed of New York, Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, Andrew uh, Gar Garbana Rio? Garbanio? I am probably said his name wrong, so I apologize. Of New York, Nicole Malatokis of New York, and David McKinley of West Virginia. All these people voted against it. I mean, I mean, voted for it. Were Republicans that voted for it, and so overall, it passed with, um, I don't know. Some will try to claim bipartisan support in the House, but there are like two hundred some Republicans, and what they had like thirteen go and vote. I just, I don't know. That's not, I, that's not really bipartisan, other than just not a perfect party line vote to me. I wouldn't really call that bipartisan. Anyway, so the infrastructure bill is passed. And now it's just left is the reconciliation bill. Because this bill has been being negotiated essentially behind closed doors as opposed to through the um, legislative process. So normally a bill would be debated, you know, on the floor and in committee. We would make amendments and vote down amendments. But because it's basically just all being decided behind closed doors and then will be brought onto the floor all at once, uh, no one's really sure what's going to be in the bill. Um, it's made news reporting really hard. It's made polling really hard. And it's made the political process for everyone else really, really hard, not knowing what's in the bill. Um, so yeah. As well, one of the things that is talked about being in the bill is um, the SALT deduction. So that is the state and local taxes. So the SALT deduction basically lets people um, deduct their state and local taxes from their federal taxes. And so... The more you pay in state and local tax, the more you can deduct from your federal taxes, that's the less you pay in federal taxes. So that means this SALT deduction is basically a subsidy um, for states with high taxes, pretty much. It um, basically lets, lets states tax their citizens at the expense of taxes going to the federal government. Um, and, you know, you might say, oh, well, I prefer my taxes going to the state than opposed to local, but... What you have to understand is that not every state has equal tax burdens, which means Democratic states, which are these very high-tax states, have a disproportionate benefit than the Republican states. That's why you basically saw this get removed under the Republican tax cuts and why it's being put in back right now. They um, 
this is basically a payoff to Democrats, um, and basically something meant to, in a way, cushion the blow from Democratic states taxing the crap out of their constituents. As well, the salt deduction was not fully eliminated under the Trump tax cuts. It was lowered at 10,000 percent. I mean, oh my god. It was lowered at $10,000. You could only deduct $10,000 from your um, federal tax, from your federal income for this. Um, but the Democrats are raising it to 80000 80000 Tell me, what, what average American is paying $80,000 in state and local taxes? None. This is basically purely a tax break for wealthy Democrats. That's it. And one... That's concerning because Democrats were always saying, oh, we're not going to raise taxes on the poor, but only the rich. Well, now you're literally lowering taxes on basically high-income earners and the rich. As well, um, it's just, at the same time, you're trying to spend all this money, and you're trying to raise taxes to fund it. At the same time, you're lowering taxes for some people. I mean, come on now, that's insane. Um, and it really, it's like a step forward, a step back sort of ordeal. So that just is frustrating to deal with. Um, as well, it's it's just a, it's an unfair tax break because it's a subsidy for high tax states to tax their constituents more and more without um, bleeding them too too dry. So yeah, that's what I have to say about the salt deduction in the bill. Um, so overall, for the reconciliation bill, no one has any clue how long this might take to pass, or if it even does. I'm... I thought before that it wouldn't pass, but with the, with the election just happening, and basically the moderates being emboldened so much, building up the fiscal capital, that, um, that progressives might be able to swallow their pride enough and basically let go of enough to actually get it to pass. Which um, would suck, in my opinion. One, um, because more government spending pretty much always sucks. More taxes, more debt, more inflation. Um, so I would hate to see it pass, but it looks like it might now. Obviously not as big as it could have, uh, but it might lower the threshold of um, progressive compromise enough that it does get passed, which would be interesting to see. However, as I alluded to earlier, with a lack of communication between the two um, houses, the Senate and the House, what might end up happening is actually both um, bills pass, I mean, the reconciliation passes in both the House and Senate. But then when it goes to the um, the conference, the joint conference committee, where, I mean, I don't know how many of you did this, but when a bill passes both the House and Senate, it's not actually, like, done yet. Then it goes to a conference where they basically make the bills equal to each other because... Like, imagine they pass a bill in the House, and then it goes to the Senate, but then they amend it in the Senate, and then they pass it. Well, now those are actually two different bills, like, which one would the president sign? Do they have to then, like, reconcile the bills together? I didn't want to use the word reconciliation because I don't want to confuse it with the actual reconciliation process, but I'm pretty sure it's called reconciliation anyway. So it's just kind of confusing. This joint conference committee of both House and Senate members will convene, basically compromise on the two bills, the Senate and the House bill, and then throw it back to both the houses, and then both the houses vote on it again, and then it goes to the president. Um, but you might end up seeing here where they both pass it, but they pass different reconciliation bills, it goes to the Joint Conference Committee, and either they can't agree, or whatever they do agree on can't pass both chambers. 
So you might see both get passed, but then essentially fail later on. So that's really interesting. I, I don't know if that ever really happening. It's so it happens so infrequently that that second conference committee point is pretty much never brought up. It's very very rarely an issue, um, especially considering when these bills are decided in backroom deals. Um, if both the house, if, if like one chamber passes the bill without amending it, then it doesn't have to go through the committee because it's the same bill. Which is why sometimes you see um, either the Senate or the House saying we can't amend the bill, we can't amend the bill because they're trying to avoid sending it to the conference committee and then having to vote on it again. So yeah, so that's a little info for you all. Okay, so now we have to go on to the Democrats' approval ratings. This was a very, very um, robust poll. So the poll was taken between the election and the passage of the infrastructure bill. So if you think, oh, the infrastructure bill um, might change its numbers, yeah, it might. It, ha it happened in between, so the basically the stuff happening from the infrastructure bill have not been factored in to people's decision makings here. As well, the margin of error of the poll is plus or minus 3.1 percentage points. So any number I tell you, it might be 3.1% higher, it might be 3.1% lower. So keep that in mind. Okay, so Joe Biden's approval. 37.8% yes, 59% no, 3.2% undecided. This leaves him with a 21.2% uh, difference between approval and disapproval, and obviously 21.2% in the disapproval direction. So that's a pretty big overall disapproval rating. Um, and to see him drop so much, because I mean, imagine if all the Democrats said yes, all Republicans said no, Joe Biden should be sitting like around 50%. So that drop is basically is Democrats saying, yeah, you know what, I don't like them. So that's really impressive to see. And then we go on to Kamala Harris has a 27.8% yes, 51.2% no. Her undecided is 21, so that's actually a very big undecided. So there is a lot of room to move. Uh, however, the difference between her um, approval and disapproval is 23.4%. So 23.4, that's a bigger disapproval difference than Joe Biden, uh, but also that's a lot more undecided for her. But even if all the undecided magically said, you know what, I do approve Kamala Harris, she still would be down on the negative in the disapproval area. So yeah, that's pretty big news. Um, though to be honest, I don't know how much stock I put in approval and disapproval ratings. Um, they ebb and they flow. What I'm more interested in is some of these other numbers that I'm about to tell you. So 46% um, say Joe Biden has done a worse job than they expected. Um, so wow, and let me, let me be clear, 46% say he's done a worse job. That does not mean 54 said he's done a better job. Because this includes those that are undecided and those that say that he did about the same job. So 46% say that he's done a worse job than they expected. That's, um, that's amazing to see. To think. Um, as well, that included 16% of those that voted for him say he's doing a worse job than they expected. This is showing some flow, um, basically showing that he's not doing what people thought he was going to do. I mean, that's obviously true. He campaigned on being like a great compromise candidate, being someone moderate, normalcy, but he's only brought in radicalism and like difference and divisiveness. Joe Biden's been so divisive with the stuff he's done, like the, um, the mandate, the vaccine mandate, and now this the massive, I mean the original $6 trillion 
Bill, I mean, that's insane. Anyway. Um. And then independence. So independence. So you have to understand that independence are mostly where um, it shifts between positive Democrats, positive Republicans um, for like elections. A lot of shit happens in, with independence. Independence. 44% versus 6% um, say he's done a worse job. That's crazy. 44% of independents say he's done a worse job than they expected. And only 6 say that he's done better. That, that does not bode well for 2024 or 2022 for that matter. Speaking of 2024, 64% say they do not want to see Joe Biden run for a second term. That includes 28% of Democrats. 28% of Democrats do not want Joe Biden to run for a second term. To put this sort of in perspective, the opposition to Trump running for a second term in 2024 is at 58%. So 64% say they don't want Biden to run for a second term. 58% say they don't want Trump to run for a second term. Um, and, you know, 28% of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to run for a second term. Only 24% of Republicans don't want um, Trump to run for a second term. Um, so yeah, that's interesting to note. See that more people opposed to a Joe Biden second term than a uh, Trump one. As well, I want to bring up the fact that don't you guys remember in the primary when Joe Biden said he wouldn't run for re-election? Like, I remember that. Everyone was saying, Joe, you're so old, you're so old. He said, ah, don't worry, I'm only going to run once. I'm not going to run for re-election. Like, does anyone else remember that? Because I pretty distinctly remember that. Um, but everyone's kind of been ignoring that. In fact, in, like, March, the news started talking about re-election. And I don't know about you guys, but I was under the impression Joe Biden would not be running for re-election at all. Okay. So, now we have numbers regarding the reconciliation bill. 30% say the reconciliation bill will hurt their family. 30% of Americans think the reconciliation bill will be harmful for them. That's crazy. Um, especially when you consider only 26% think it's going to help them. So basically, 4% more of Americans think that um, the reconciliation bill is going to be harmful for them. That does not bode well for passing it. 31% um, of Americans say there will be no effect. So that's not very ardent support for the bill. By ardent, I mean like intense support or intense disapproval. When we go to the generic approval, disapproval, 47% say yes, 44% say no. Uh, so there is a, a majority, not a majority, um, a plurality that basically say yes. But it's very close to the no, and let me be clear, um, polls do not do a good job at measuring intensity. The 44 that oppose it, oppose it much more vigorously than the 47 that, um, that support it. As well, I wonder how this poll would show if they asked people if they were going to support all the inflation that comes along with the bill, all the extra taxes they were going to have to come of it, as well remember that inflation is a tax on savings, as well as what they thought about the more government interference and the less liberty they would have because of it. I think if you ask those questions, you'd see a majority, not a plurality, but a majority actually oppose this bill. Because they actually knew what it was going to do and how it was going to affect them, this would not be a popular bill. As well, they have numbers for the generic congressional ballot. For those of you that don't know, the way the generic congressional ballot works is in when they do the poll, they say, Irregardless of who the candidate is, are you more? Do you think you're going to vote Republican or Democrat? 
for the congressional race in 2024. Now, it came out 46% said Republican, 38% said Democrat. So that's almost a, that's an 8% gain for Republicans. As well, you have to consider that because of um, geographical layout, Republicans really only need to tie the Democrats in the um, congressional generic ballot to basically win the House. And so the fact they're going up by eight, that's insane. That's very good news for Republicans. As well, um, Republicans only need five seats to take a majority in the House. They're very close. As for congressional approval rating, 12% um, approve, incredibly low. And 75% disapprove. I mean, wow, that's um, really, really bad numbers. Um, so yeah, as for by party, 29% um, approve of Democrats, um, while 35% um, approve of Republicans. So wow, Republicans have a like plus 6% in their approval rating for the House. This all bodes very, very well for Republicans coming into 2022. If you're a Republican right now, you're basically pumping your fist cheering. As well, I think this is an interesting statistic. 66% of Americans say that we are on the wrong track, while only 20% say that America is on the right track. I think this is going to be a very important indicator for what happens in 2022. A lot of times, presidents sail to re-election if the economy is good. If the presidential election was held in February 2020, uh, Joe, I mean, yeah, Donald Trump would have won. The economy was doing great. People were doing great. Um, in fact, some people say that the reason that Republican governors overreacted to the pandemic and shut down so hard was to basically crash the economy and um, prevent Donald Trump from winning by having a bad economy. Which, there's pretty blatantly clear evidence for that. Democrats, without a doubt, overreacted. And they definitely were very cognizant of the fact that crashing the economy would basically benefit them electorally. But irregardless of that, if 56% of Americans think that they're on the wrong track right now, um, there's a good chance that the House will flip to Republicans. And with, with only 20% things on the right track, you may even see the Senate flip, which I, I, I don't know if the Senate will flip. I'm fairly, fairly certain that the House will flip in 2022. The Senate, though, the thing with the Senate is that the map is really, really bad for, for Republicans. This is a horrible map for Republicans. Um... They're defending way too many seats. They're defending seats in states Joe Biden won. They're defending seats in states that are competitive. Um, and there just really are not the sort of democratic vulnerabilities that um, the Republicans have. But not impossible. And if you look at the map, Democrats, no, Republicans could come away with a 53-seat majority in the um, Senate if basically everything went their way. 54 if it was really, really their way. They could nab North New Hampshire. They could grab, nab New Hampshire, but I don't think that's likely at all. Either way, um, this could be a good bellwether for what will happen in 2022. And with it being past the election of 2021, this pretty much kicks off the election season for 2022. So that's fun. Hope you guys like the midterms. Hope you guys like campaigning for Senate. Um... So now we're going to dive in, and I'm going to discuss with you all what I think are best, what the party's best strategies are for 2022. So we're going to start off with the Democrats, because let's face it, the Democrats have much more 
ability and what they can do in preparation for 2022. Step one, I say they should let Mansion sink the reconciliation bill. Um, now you might be wondering why. Well, one, because I think the majority of Americans are going to hate it. Viciously so. I think it's going to prevent... I mean, it's... Uh, eh, sorry. By, by sinking the bill, they'll prevent increased inflation. They won't add on to the debt. As well, not adding on to the debt will put them in a better position for when they have to increase the debt ceiling in December. If... Because if they basically let the infrastructure... Let the reconciliation bill sink, when they go in to have to raise it, they really can say, hey, it's already approved spending, you know, we already approved the spending, so you Dem Republicans really shouldn't be holding it up so much. But if they go into the ceiling uh, with trying to also spend $2 trillion more, it's going to be basically obvious that, like, hey, why don't you stop spending so much money? As well, um, frankly, I would also say that they should let the um, the the infrastructure bill also gets sunk by progressive basically have a mutual each other sink each other's bills but they already passed the infrastructure bill so there's nothing more to do about that as well i would say um use um basically say oh we use the fact that they passed the infrastructure bill as an excuse to pass a very moderate budget with republicans um so basically say hey we passed the infrastructure bill this authorized a lot of new spending Therefore, we don't have to have as robust a um, budget as we wanted to have. Um, and use that as an excuse to pass a moderate budget with Republicans. So I don't mean just pass continuing resolutions, but pass a real actual budget that will cover you until the end of fiscal year 2022. Basically what this will do is it will keep budget fights out of the news um, for almost the entire election cycle pretty much. Um, by keeping that out of the fight, I mean, that's... That's one of Republicans' biggest sticking points, is being fiscal hawks. And while obviously, they haven't been fiscal hawks, um, like at all, the Donald Trump ran up massive deficits, so did uh, George Bush, but they still like to pretend, and a lot of people, a lot of people believe it, and I definitely, you know, people, people see that the government can't spend indefinitely and forever. And so, um, Use the, use the infrastructure bill to pass a moderate budget with Republicans. Um, compromise will show that Republicans still care about other people. Because I've talked in the last couple of um, episodes about how Democrats don't care about Republicans, and they look down on Republicans and look down on Republican voters. You saw this with um, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables comment back in 2016. Never, ever disparage um, voters. Bad move. Um... And while Democrats haven't been explicitly doing this, they have implicitly been doing this. And so they should stop that. Um, and working with Republicans is the, best, is the best way to do that. Especially passing a moderate budget that will keep budget fights out of the news for a while. As well, to also let them soften the blow in 2022, Biden should announce that the vaccine mandate is um, no longer needed. Biden should just say, ah, oh, you know what, vaccination rates are high enough. Um, the booster now, if you want it, you can get it. So everyone, no more vaccination mandate requirements. Um, yeah. That, I think, will help a lot. I want to say, I think that if Democrats did all these things, I, I don't think they would win the House. I think they would still still lose the House even if they did all this. However, I don't think they would lose it by as much, and it might help them save the Senate. 
if they can show that they can be thoughtful about things like this, it might let them save the Senate, and it will weaken how bad they get destroyed in the House. As well, uh, the best thing the Republicans do to help them is basically continue to um, overly embrace Trump. The best thing for Democrats is if Republicans just continue to walk more into Trump, more into Trump, more into Trump. Um, I think it will. All the suburban voters that came and turned out for Republicans in the election on Tuesday, they'll go right back to um, to Democrats again. This is something else I wanted to bring up, but I forgot to. Was that there was talk by basically pollsters and political pundits that, huh, maybe um, suburban, basically suburban white moms are leaving the Republicans so much because of Trump. They don't like his nastiness. They don't like his character. They don't like who he is. Um, and they were thought, maybe this is a permanent shift. Maybe they're going to start to shift towards Democrats. But you basically saw this broken. They all came running back to Republicans, especially one with Trump not on the ballot, with him out of the news a lot more. Because let's face it, the only reason Trump is in the news now is because Democrats can't stop talking about him. They have a giant crush on him. All they can do is talk about him, talk about him, talk about him. Trump has not done, like, anything at all um, since, um, since basically January 20th. Um, and so, so yeah, with Trump pretty much out of the picture, people like um, Youngkin basically talking like, basically walking the line between Trump and not Trump, it's um become very clear that these suburban voters are going to come right back to Republicans, especially especially if they can if Democrats continue to be hostile towards education. Um education is something that's not talked about much because a lot of people don't care about education because they're not currently being educated. But for suburban parents, education is a very big thing. For a lot of suburban people they move specifically into places with good school districts for their kids. For a lot of towns, uh, school districts are one of the biggest factors in determining property values. Education is very important to this demographic. And if basically Democrats continue to push like CRT um, and Marxist ideology in their classes, um, you will see suburbans coming out more and more and more for Republicans. Okay. Time for what the Republican strategy should be. So, um, this is a very simple. One, Republicans need to get Youngkin-style people in these Senate races. And they need to get them in um, Pennsylvania, Ohio, um, North Carolina, um, not necessarily Alabama, but it wouldn't hurt to have one in Alabama. Have them also in uh, uh, Dakota, Dakota, Montana. Remember, Montana is currently run not run, but the current Montana senator up for re-election is John Tester, who is a Democrat. Republicans may be able to pick up Montana. Um, Mark Kelly is in um, Arizona. They should run a Youngkin style in um, Arizona. Arizona, I think, is someplace you will see come going back Republican, especially um, with a Youngkin style person. As well, um, get, oh, what's his name? What's the other state? Oh, Georgia. Make sure you get a Youngkin-style Republican in Georgia. If you if they can put Youngkin-style people, people that walk the line between Trump and not Trump, they will be able to crush it in these Senate races. They also need to focus on local issues. They need to get specialized. This um, basically 
the way that Youngton was able to monopolize on um, the educational discussion in the Virginia race was very beneficial. And when you start having like these um, very local races for like Congress, they have to get local. They have to start talking about education, things that are specific to each community. You have to find, you can't just say, oh, Democrats are doing all these bad things. You have to say, Democrats are doing X bad thing right here, right now to us. That will be very persuasive and will benefit them uh, a lot. For Republicans, the best thing Democrats can do is continue to go to the left. Pass, like, pass a bunch of spending bills, raise the debt ceiling, do all that crap. That will help Republicans. As well, you know, I, I talked about a few things Republicans can do, but a lot of it, a lot of it is going to depend on what Democrats do for how Republicans do in 2022. Okay, there's also some news for Joe Biden's vaccine mandate. So his vaccine mandate for private companies are halted by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Texas AG um, basically challenged the um, mandate along with the AGs from Louisiana, Mississippi, Utah, and South Carolina. Uh, and the Fifth Circuit basically um, halted it. And it seems now that it's probably going to end up in the Supreme Court, where um, with a 3-1-4 court, no, 3-1-5 court, it will most likely be struck down. So that's pretty much all the political news for today. So that means now we go into economic news. I just want to say that the stock markets have been at all-time highs. Um, I want to remind everyone that these numbers are largely disconnected from reality, pretty much. Um, the stock market generally just goes up if people think it's going to do better tomorrow than it is today. So if you're in the stock market, you go, hmm, I think the market will be better tomorrow. You buy, you buy stuff, and prices go up because you're buying stuff and not selling stuff. Um, or you might say, oh, I think the market will be better tomorrow, and so I'm not going to sell today. Decrease supply, increase prices. So, yeah. Okay, now it's time for economic indicators. Um, the ISM manufacturing new orders for October are um, 59.8. Previously, they were at 66.7, so um, new orders have dropped some. Um, the ISM manufacturing prices for October, 85.7. Previously, they were 81.2. Um, so you see this index going up. That's in line with the PPI, producer price index, has been going up a lot. Inflation has been running rampant. Um, I am, ISM manufacturing employment for October is at 52. Previously was at 50.2, um, so that's a, basically like a two increase, increase of two. It's um, an indicator, so an index, so I don't know exactly how much each point is or what it means, but there's more employment in manufacturing. That's good news. The 30-year mortgage rate for um, the week of October 29th is at 3.24. Previously, with that 3.3, so you see it, it's, it's dropped down now. So the mortgage rate's dropping down. Not by much. I don't know if it's anything to note. Might be just back up again next week, but still interesting to see. The MBA mortgage rate applications for the week of October 29th are down 3.3%. Um, so I know there is, there is seasonal buying. Um, I know like spring is when the most houses are bought and sold. So this might just be part of the normal yearly uptick or downtick. But I'm not sure when the downtick really starts. So I can't 
speak to it fully. The MBA purchase index for the week of October 29th is at 27, I mean 271.1, and previously it was at 275.6, so drop down, makes sense with applications going down. The MBA mortgage refinance index for the week of October 29th is 2,645. Previously, it was 2,763, so decreasing in uh, mortgage refinances. That makes a lot of sense. Um, a lot of, if, the, if the mortgage rate is going up, why would you refinance? And you're just going to be in a higher rate, especially when you consider how low mortgage rates have been for so long after um, the Great Recession. It makes sense that refinancing is going down. The MBA Mortgage Market Index for the 29th of October is um, 623.8 previously with that 645, so a decrease in the Mortgage Market Index. Okay. The ADP employment change for October. I, I don't know what the ADP is, but the employment change from them um, is 571,000. Previously, it was 523,000. So this is a change to that. I guess that means 5,000, I mean, 571,000 new workers, I guess, or something like that. The amount of people changing. Maybe it's turnover. I don't know. Sorry about that. Factory orders. So month-over-month uh, -month factory orders for September, not for October, but for September, are um, up 0.2%. Previously, they were up 1%. They're pretty much flat, it seems. Factory orders excluding transportation for September, up 0.7%, previously up 0.5%, again, pretty near flat. Um, as well, there was the Federal Open Market Committee uh, with the Federal Reserve met, and their rate decision is 0.25%, that's the same as it was before. Uh, didn't shock anyone, no move at all. The balance of trade for September is negative um, 80.9 billion, so 80.9 billion in imports. Briefly, it was 72.8 billion in imports, so that tells you what that is. The forecast was negative 80.5 billion, uh, so that's pretty close to what it actually was. So predictions were pretty on point. We also have ini initial jobless claims for the week of October 30th. They are 269,000. This is down from 283,000, which is down from the week couple weeks before. This is good. Continuing trend of initial jobless claims going down. As well, the consensus, the, the prediction for this week would be kind of going to be 275,000. It was 269,000, so it, the expectation is very, very good to see. As well, with um, initial jobless claims going down, the jobless claims for the four-week average shrunk. It is 284.75 thousand. It was previously 299.75 thousand. Um, Non-farm productivity quarter over quarter is down 5%. Um, Previously, was up 2.4%, so that's not too good to see. As well, the consensus was going to be down 3%, but it's down 5%, so that's um, very bad to see. Here we have continuing jobless claims for the week of October 23rd. Um, 2.1 million. Previously, it was 2.2 million, so decrease. That's nice. As well, the prediction was 2.11 million, um, and so it, it beat expectation, which is nice to see. Exports for September are 207 billion, 
Previously, they were $214 billion, so exports going down. That's sad to see. Um, imports for September, $288 billion. That's up a little from the $286 billion from the month before. Okay, local vehicle sales for October. Um, the total vehicle... Oh, my God, I'm sorry. Where did I get local? It says total vehicle sales for October were $13 million. Up from 12.1 million. So that's really good to see. Increase in vehicle sales. Oh, non-farm payrolls. Here we go. Uh, let, me, let me take a look at this. Look at these numbers. Okay, okay. Um, so the non-farm payrolls are up 500, five, yeah, 531,000. Previously, they were up um, 312,000. So that's a really good um, increase in jobs, pretty much, because non-farm payrolls are basically jobs. The unemployment rate for October is said to be 4.6%, down from 4.8% um, from previously. The forecasted was 4.7, so the actual beat it. I want to remind you all, though, that unemployment only includes those looking for a job. If you drop out of the job market, if you have no job but are not looking for a job, you're not counted on unemployment. So when people say, oh, we're going to drop down to um, unemployment levels similar to that before the pandemic, there are not the same number of jobs. So there are people that have dropped out of the job market because of the pandemic. Um, and so I just want you all to remember that, that the employment rate before the pandemic and after the pandemic are not very, not really comparable because it does not take into account the people that dropped out of the labor force. Okay. Government payrolls for October down um, 73,000. Usually they were down 54,000. Non-farm payrolls for private um, for October up 304,000. Previously up 665,000. So, yep, good. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Average hourly earnings year over year up 4.9% for October. Uh, that definitely is not being inflation, which means um, your actual, your real earnings went down. Average weekly earnings for October, 34.7. Previously, they were 34.8. Pretty much flat. Uh, manufacturing payrolls for October went up 60%. Previously, they went up 31%. So that's good. More manufacturing. Labor participation rate for October for the labor force, 61.6%. Previously, it was 61.6%. So pretty much the same. Average hourly earnings month over month for October are up. 0.4%. So they were up 0.6%. That is not enough to match inflation. So that sucks for everyone. Okay. Um, consumer inflation expectations for October. They were 5.7%. Good. They should be that high. They should be higher than what we're being told is the inflation, but I think it probably should be higher than 5.7%. Inflation is getting out of control, and it's being very um, wily and such. Okay. Well, everybody, that is about all the news that I have for you all today.